labor has dignity. Thank unions, it's Friday. I'm Hussein. And I'm Maddie. Rachel, unfortunately, was in a car accident. She's doing okay. Thankfully, she does have a concussion and some injuries, but we're very grateful that she's on the whole doing okay and she'll be back on the show soon. Uh, But in the meantime, Maddie, who's our comms person for On The Line, is gonna be filling in to co-host. Uh, for today's episode. As you all know, or for some of you who are first-time listeners, On The Line is a show to highlight a real people's history and struggle-oriented perspective on what's happening on the ground in workplaces and sectors across the United States. Whether we're on the assembly line, on the phone line, or on the picket line, you'll always find us on the line. Today we'll be talking about the unionization efforts of flight attendants and are joined by Michael Behrman, Delta Airlines flight attendant and organizing committee member. But first, I'll pass it over to Hussein for this week in labor history. On the line, we look to history for education, motivation, and inspiration for the fights ahead. Today, in 1950, Senator Joseph McCarthy began his war on lefts, communists, radicals of all sorts, and so-called, quote-unquote, foreign agents, leading to the expulsion of some of the strongest union leaders and marking the beginning of what we now know as McCarthyism. These attacks came in the wake of the pro-corporate pushback that arose from the Taft-Hartley Act, which restricted the activities and power of unions, severely weakening them. On February 11th in 1948, UAW started White Shirt Day, marking the anniversary of the 1936 and 1937 Flint sit-down strike, reminding the boss of their power to shut it down if needed. The one rule, don't get your shirt any dirtier than the boss gets his. On February 12th in 1865, a union of iron forgers were victorious in their eight-month strike, winning a new wage scale based on the price of iron bars in what may be the first known union contract in U.S. history. This serves as an early example of skilled workers fighting back in the rising industry in the U.S. in the aftermath of the Civil War. It also goes to show that as long as we have seen industrial capital in the United States, we have seen workers fight back against it and win. On February 15th in 1950, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, or the CIO, expelled over a dozen left-led unions due to, quote-unquote, communist tendencies. This was, of course, a provision of the Taft-Hartley Act, also known as the Anti-Communist Affidavit. This expulsion, which occurred during the era of McCarthyism, played a large part in the decline of the U.S. labor movement and the rise of corruption. Lastly, on February 16th in 1926, New York furriers began a general strike which would result in the first union to win a five-day, 40-hour work week due to the solidarity between Jewish, Greek, and black workers. The fight for the eight-hour workday didn't start there, though. In 1886, in what started as a peaceful rally, many workers striking for an eight-hour day were killed in the Haymarket Massacre, which we commemorate today with International Workers' Day, or May Day, on May 1st. The eight-hour workday later became a major fight, with reduced working hours being one of the major elements of the UAW Flint sit-down strike. Ultimately, the norm of the five-day, 40-hour workweek that we take for granted was due to union victories, which is why here on On the Line, as we always say, thank unions, it's Friday. That's all for this week in labor history. 
on the line. We'll keep looking to the past to fight for our future. Now, let's get into it. Hussein, before we get into it, I actually want to talk a little bit about the history of flight attendants organizing with um, just in general. <laughs> yeah, let's do it before we call in Michael. Yeah. So, I mean, Michael's a Delta flight attendant. Delta mm-hmm. has about 50,000 employees and only 20% are unionized as mm-hmm. opposed to 80% with most other airlines. Um, so, you know, it's just crazy to see the amount of potential that they would have if they actually could unionize the, mm-hmm. those employees at Delta. Yeah, no, I mean, it's one of the biggest new organizing campaigns that we've seen in years, right? 50,000 workers in total split up between the machinists, the Teamsters, maintenance workers, people who are uh, ramp agents loading packages and also luggage, and of course, like you mentioned, flight attendants. Yeah, and I, I've i been reading up a lot about this um, yeah. just as a woman. You know, flight attendants historically are are, we're all women. Mm-hmm. And some of the shit they had to deal with is actually insane. Mm-hmm. Like, people were subject to weight checks. They could get their, you know, bra, girdle, slip tested at any time. Their nail polish had to be a certain color. Like, it was ridiculous. Dealing with that in the workplace, you have to fight against it. And, I, you know, I'm sure it was one of the reasons that the organizing began. They used to have these really sexist ads that they would run. Um, you know, they would they would name the ads after different flight attendants. Uh, there was one that, um, I forget which airline it was, but, you know, basically said, I'm Cheryl, fly me. That was the ad. With an implied message. Yes, uh, yeah. an implied message. Um, and they would even name the planes after those flight attendants to, like, reinforce that advertisement. Yeah. One of the the things they did in response to that ad campaign was, you know, they actually organized a campaign that they would call Go Fly Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> One thing you mentioned earlier before we started the show is that they were forced to kiss male passengers on the cheek Mm -hmm. as they exited the flight. Yeah. Talk about demeaning. That's disgusting. And and there's an article I was reading that oftentimes male passengers would turn around and and then kiss people on the lips. So you're getting assaulted on your job day to day, basically. Yeah. Absolutely insane. People couldn't get married. Yep. And or be pregnant, mm-hmm. and we're expected to leave the job. I think the average time tenure of a flight attendant in that period in the '60s was like 32 months. Yeah, 32 months. And you know, it's crazy because if you actually worked longer than that, they basically said that you're not the type of girl they wanted because you're never going to get married. Mm. That's insane. But really, that wasn't that long ago, it and it wasn't. was even after the passage of the Civil Rights Act when ostensibly. Many of these behaviors would be illegal. Uh, like you had mentioned, it's not a self-executing thing. It's in law, but right, for right. it to really change, it took litigation, it took collective bargaining, it took collective action as a whole. Right, yeah. The collective action was really what did it because, you know, the like you said, the law had already been passed and this was still going on. Um, and it's it's cool to see how creative they got in some of their organizing and fighting back. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard about chaos at all on the planes? It stands for creating havoc around our system. Mm -hmm. And basically what it means is that as the plane was boarding, flight attendants on that flight would just walk off the job with no advance warning or anything. Mm. Um, So, you know, really kind of caught the management by surprise. And, you know, that element of surprise, I think, I mean, we saw that with the UAW strike this past summer. Yeah. The AFA was in bargaining with— Alaska Airlines, Mm -hmm. I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And because of 
because they're governed under the Railway Labor Act, they don't have the right to strike, essentially. And, and it also speaks to the power uh, flight attendants have and really that entire industry. You can have a group of workers that just shut down a sort of key form of circulation of goods in the economy. Right, right. Um, and so they don't have the right to strike, but they do have the right uh, to hold intermittent strikes or intermittent work stoppages, mm-hmm. um, which in that time, I think it was in the late 70s, I believe, or or 80s, they struck even before a single worker, a single flight attendant struck um, as they were in negotiations and threatening this tactic and as it was getting more attention in the media, 20% of Alaska Airlines flights were canceled. 20%? Because if you're, Damn. if you're a passenger and you're like, I need to go here for a work meeting or some commitment, funeral, whatever, something mm-hmm. important, and there are multiple airlines going to that destination, if I'm worried that it so happens to be my flight that five flight attendants walk off the job and I can't get to my destination. I'm going to go with a different airline. Right, right. That's so, crazy. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, it's very creative. It's still under—it only impacts as far as retaliation because surely a lot of these workers who did end up striking, I think it ended up being just 24 that ended up striking wow. um, at Alaska Airlines. Um, they were on a quote-unquote guts list. People who were—they're like— Fuck it. I'm I'm fine with getting fired. Uh and so those people, all of them who struck ended up being fired. They oh, wow. struck one of the last flights out of Las Vegas to to I forget the destination. And then they also simultaneously struck five flights out of San Francisco. All these workers ended up getting fired, but it was too late because it created, like you said, so much chaos. Right. I mean, yeah, cutting twenty percent of the flights, that's no joke. For twenty four no. people, I yeah. mean, that's big. Yeah. And imagine if you're the company, right? Because you could just—I was thinking about, well, what would the solutions be to trying to respond to this tactic? And the only way you'd be able to cover, ensure that you um, had—ensure that no flights were disrupted is if you had a team of scabs that could fill in for any group of striking workers— every location a flight took off from. At every time. At every time. Yeah. Which is an enormous amount of money. So that wasn't an option. Yeah, that's definitely not an option. And because they don't know which flight's going to be struck, you're just kind of like— And But the impact was far beyond just those flights because they were—it was a cat and mouse game. Right. And people started canceling their flights. They're like, I'm not going to go with a different airline. Exactly. So the unknown history of AFA, CWA, and creative tactics to— get around some very, very conservative labor law that prevents a group of workers who are crucial to the functioning of the economy from from striking. And there are many workers who, who fall under that category who have contracts that are expiring this year. So we're so glad to welcome Michael Bierman, who's a flight attendant with Delta Airlines and an organizing committee member helping lead a campaign to unionize Delta flight attendants with the Association of Flight Attendants Communication Workers of America, or AFACWA. Michael, you're based out of Detroit for work. You live in D.C. Welcome to the show. We're so honored to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we jump into anything about the campaign. You work at Delta as a flight attendant. What is it that drew you to being a flight attendant? 
at Delta. What do you love about your work? Yeah, I mean, I never thought I would be a flight attendant um, until I became one. Um, you know, I've always loved flying and I've loved traveling. I worked as a gate agent for a little while in DC, uh, but just worked some other jobs after that. And I just came to the job because, you know, I wanted to try it. I wanted to see if I liked it. And I was a little nervous in the beginning because there is so much unpredictability. You know, you're away from home a lot. Um, but once I went through training and I actually started flying, I I really don't think there's another job that I could do. You know, I think uh, being able to travel and being able to meet so many different people from around the world every single day, um, and also just a sense of camaraderie with my like colleagues, other flight attendants, like it's really something that I haven't found in any other industry. You know, we go through so much as flight attendants and only flight attendants understand that. And so I think there's this special connection that we all have that I really like, you know, with with a union or without a union. Um, I, I really like kind of the connection that we all have as flight attendants. Tell us a little bit about what your day is like as a, as a flight attendant at Delta. Yeah, it's hard to say um, what a typical day is like, but um, like you said, I, I live in Washington, D.C. So uh, before I go to work, um, I actually have to get to Detroit. So um, I'll typically start my work day the day before um, flying to Detroit. Um, I usually fly standby, so I don't have to pay for my ticket, um, but I do have to plan pretty far in advance um, in order to get to work. And that's pretty common for um, most flight attendants. We don't actually live in our base. Um, I would say about 50% of Delta flight attendants in Detroit live somewhere else in the country, whether that's on the East Coast, West Coast, in other countries. And then um, I get to work. I usually spend my own money on a hotel here. And then um, I'll show up an hour before departure. Um, that's the required report time. And for that whole hour, we don't get paid at all. Um, so I get to the airport and I'll get to my gate uh, for a briefing. And then about 40 minutes before uh, our flight departs, we'll start boarding. And Delta just introduced boarding pay about two years ago. Um, it's the only airline um, that has boarding pay currently, but we get about half of our usual wage on boarding. Then I'll work my flight, and that can really depend. Sometimes I'll work two flights a day. Um, I can go up to four flights a day, um, but I'm technically allowed to be on duty for up to 15 hours and one minute, um, and that is a FAA requirement. So, um, you know, I may fly to from Detroit to Cleveland. I may fly from Detroit to Amsterdam. Uh, may go to the West Coast, back to the East Coast. Sometimes I'll get to a layover, and then I'll get a call from Delta, and they'll tell me they actually need me somewhere else. And my whole schedule will change. Um, I'll end up being in a totally different city. And then uh, after one to three days, depending on the trip length, I'll get back to Detroit. And I either start another trip or I'll try to head back to D.C. Um, hopefully I can head back that day. Uh, but sometimes I get in too late. And so I'll have to spend um, another night at a hotel and then get back to D.C. in the morning. Um, so that's kind of the whole the whole schedule of a, of a typical flight attendant, I'd say. Wow. And and. Sorry, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around this whole scheduling issue. So how many days of the month do you actually know your schedule? Uh, so that also kind of depends. So um, like I said, six days out of the month, I'm on reserve. And then the rest of the days, it kind of depends on um, what Delta's operational needs are. So when I get my schedule in the beginning of the month, I'll typically get between 75 to 85 hours of flight time in theory. Uh, from what I've heard from other flight attendants, you know, even though we're guaranteed a minimum of, say, 75 hours um, for the month of January, I've heard that some flight attendants are getting 45 hours on their schedule. And um, it's really hard to pick up, especially now, because January to March is our slow period. So a lot of flight attendants are stuck with around 45 hours of flight time, uh, which is really nothing. Typically, um, for me, since I've started, I fly maybe like three days a week um, on a trip. 
Um, and so I'll do a three-day trip one week. Next week, I'll do another three-day trip until I get to my six, eight days. Um, but it, it really depends. You know, Some weeks, I don't work at all. Some weeks, I'll work a full week of just trips back to back to back. Um, so it just, it really depends. Mm. So with so much time away from home, you know, it sounds like you're spending a lot on hotels. I'm just wondering, like, how much are you actually taking back after you spend all that money? Yeah. So, um, you know, according to Delta, from Delta's point of view, I live in Detroit. They don't really know or care that I commute from DC. So that means whenever I'm in Detroit, it's my responsibility to pay for housing. So um, during A days, which um, I'm in right now, um, if I don't get used today, then I'll have to spend another um, night at a hotel using my own money. Um, so on a typical um, A day, which is for me, I'm on, I am I do four hours of standby. So I'll get paid for those four hours. I get paid around $34 an hour. So I'll make around 125 for today. And then I'll spend about $100 on a hotel tonight. Um, and this is all before taxes. So before taxes, my take-home pay um, after the hotel is around $25. Um, and after six days of A days, you're looking at maybe a little bit less than $200. Um, and that's if I don't get used, if I get used and I get a trip, then I can make a lot more, but I will never know if that's going to happen because it's, it's completely based off the operational need. Um, you know, someone calls out on another flight, Delta will call me and put me on, um, if there's a weather, you know, pattern, um, and a crew isn't able to make it into Detroit, they'll put me on, but there's no way to know ahead of time. So some months on my A days, I may make nothing. And some eight, um, some other months on eight days, I can make you know a decent amount, but it's it's really unpredictable. And you know we have a pay scale as if we do have a contract. So um, I'll get a raise um, in theory every year, but uh, you know depending on my flight hours and depending on once again Delta's operational need, my take home pay can be can be very different depending on uh, you know if it's a busy month like December, which is like you know, obviously a huge month for flying with the holidays compared to January, February, which is our slowest month. Um, Delta doesn't have a lot of flights going out. And so a lot of flight attendants just don't fly a lot because there just aren't flights to work. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, you know, the commute, I think we got to talk about it because I thought I had a long commute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so DC to Detroit, I'm just curious, you know, like how long does your commute take? And like how many days of the month do you actually get to spend in your own housing versus a hotel or in the air? Yeah. So it's actually considered an easy commute as far as commuting goes. It's about an hour flight wow. from DC to Detroit. Um, I live pretty close to the airport in DC. So um, I'll probably get to the airport probably an hour before departure. Um, I try to book um, jump seats, which um, is where the flight attendant sits. And they'll usually have an empty one that I can book ahead of time. Um, if it's if it's not, if it's already booked and it's not empty, then I have to see if they have an empty seat on the flight. Um, if that's a full flight, then I'm out of luck. Um, either I have to pay for my own ticket or I have to find another airline or something like that. But I get to the airport, um, usually the day before, fly in, hopefully there's no delays, um, get into Detroit and then um, either work the flight the day of or um, typically I'll fly in the day before. So I'll spend the night and then work the next day. Um, but I have friends um, who commute in from the West Coast, from California, every time they fly to Detroit. Um, I have a lot of friends who fly in from um, from Florida from Texas coming to Detroit. And, you know, that that adds another layer of unpredictability, especially people who commute on two flights. So I just I just fly from DC to Detroit. There's a nonstop, you know, directly mm. from those two cities. Um, you know, my colleagues who are like in Mississippi, Louisiana, they have to go to Atlanta and then Detroit um, because there's no flight nonstop from where they live. Um, and so say that, you know, first flight is delayed, they missed their second flight, how are they gonna get to work? 
Um, and we don't have really, you know, a commuter policy, which a lot of actually every airline has um, that really outlines the expectations for us in terms of getting to work and what happens if there's, say, a weather delay or a mechanical delay that's out of our control. You know, these sort of protections um, that most airlines have in their contracts. We don't have like a standard commuter policy. And so when you work, for instance, like you mentioned, December, it's a very busy time of year for airlines. Hours are presumably easier to come by. You're getting a paycheck that you feel like can actually support you. And then January, February, March, you see your paycheck from two weeks to uh, one time period to another dramatically change so much and you have zero dollars on your paycheck. What do you, I mean, how do you really get by and how do you, your coworkers get by with that type of instability? Yeah. Well, luckily, um, I had some savings um, before I started the job. And that's actually something that the airline itself recommends, um, which is kind of absurd when you think about it, right? Like a job basically asking you to save as much money as you can before you start the job, because there's an expectation that you're not going to make any money either during training or really in your first four to five years until the pay scale kind of gets up higher. Um, A lot of my friends have second jobs sometimes even a third job just to get by, whether that's waitressing, you know, working at different li- nightlife and clubs, other like gigs that they that they can find or jobs that they had previously. Um, that's how they support themselves. And even with that, a lot of people are still struggling. Um, I have some coworkers who live in cars um, because they can't afford rent. And, you know, this is a full-time job. And this is, you know, what a lot of people think. I think a lot of people think that flight attending is a very, you know, decent job, right? Like it's it's a very demanding job, but we get paid, um, you know, enough to live. And it's not true. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of flight attendants, especially in their first four to five years, are really struggling, um, even if they have, like I said, those two to three extra jobs on the side. And, and one more question before we get into maybe Maddie can take this. Uh, we have a lot of questions about how you organize flight attendants, uh, given the unique yeah. nature of the workplace. But tell us a little bit about the craziest day you had as a flight attendant. I mean, you mentioned that you could be flying to Amsterdam or you could be flying to San Francisco, back to DC, back to the East Coast. What was the day that you just got home? You're like, holy shit, that was insane. Ooh, um, I feel like there's so many. Um, I mean, there's definitely been days where I was inching up towards 15 hours of work. Um, and that that can be a really long day. Um, I feel like maybe what the most um, interesting for for non-flight attendants to hear is when I when I um, first got a transoceanic flight to Amsterdam, it wasn't on my schedule. I got it on my A days um, and I actually got it while I was on airport standby, which is where um, I basically sitting at the airport in uniform, ready to go at a moment's notice. Um, and I only I um, only had 30 minutes notice before I was put on the Amsterdam flight and was sent to uh, to Europe for 24 hours and then um, worked back a nine-hour flight. Um, so I didn't get a lot of sleep before because I was just expecting to <laughs> either not work or just work a short domestic flight. Um, but yeah, uh, got that call about 30 minutes before departure and then was off to Amsterdam for about three days. Were you able to have some some fun in Amsterdam at least? Yeah, I did have some fun. I did have some fun. I didn't get a lot of sleep. Um, we get like we get like um, some crew rest, but it's like this tiny little. Uh, it's almost like looks like a coffin on the plane. Um, it's it's um, kind of this like little department on the on the plane where where you can um, rest for like one to two hours, but no one really gets any sleep because it's so loud and cramped and uncomfortable. Um, so. Yeah, so not a lot of sleep, but I did have some fun. <laughs> not like one of those Saudi airplanes with the like first class suite. Oh no, that's that's for those who pay for it. 
Yeah. We get to pick them. I love watching those videos. I'm not going to lie on YouTube. It's Which like, videos? <laughs> like the ones where it's like, I just went on the most expensive first class flight to Dubai. <laughs> yeah, like the, the reviews big, of like different yeah. airplane seats. Yeah, yeah, and it's like bigger than my apartment. I'm like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. But we want to get into it and what it's like organizing in the air. Yeah, I mean, you know, Delta flight attendants are organizing a union. This isn't our first time organizing a union, but it's um, started in 2019. And, you know, Delta is the only mainline carrier in the United States that doesn't have a union. And we've never had a union. And basically, we're, we're organizing to have a seat at the table. You know, we um, have like pretty standard pay, standard benefits in some ways. But in many ways, we have no way to control that or secure these things that we have. So Delta flight attendants are organizing in order to get things like, you know, standard disciplinary procedures, a sick policy, a commuter policy, higher pay, better quality of life. Um, but none of these things are possible because we don't have a seat at the table right now. Um, all we have is an open door policy, according to Delta. And what what is that open door policy exactly? Yeah, so so the open door policy is basically <laughs> this idea that we're able to go to any leader in Delta and basically tell them um, our experience as flight attendants and basically ask them for certain changes on the job, whether that's higher pay or benefits. Um, and if you talk to any any um, of the anti-union folks, um, you'll say, well, you know, our culture is so different here. We have an open door policy. I'm allowed to go to my manager and ask for anything. Um, but my question is, you know, then what, then what happens? Right. Like how many managers have actually given you a higher wage because you went and asked for it, you know? Right. Well, the answer is none. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just getting into, you, you mentioned Delta is the largest airline in the United States that's non-union, at least amongst flight attendants. There are 50,000 workers that are being organized, flight attendants being one category, maintenance workers with the machinists, and and people who uh, are loading luggage, right? Yeah, the ramp agents. Mm-hmm. The ramp agents yeah. with the Teamsters. And it's a massive new organizing campaign, one that we haven't seen at least at this type of scale in, in quite some time. Of course, the UAW is organizing many of the non-union auto plants in the South, but this campaign at Delta is is really historic. It's also really unique because, like you mentioned, there's a level of instability with the schedule of flight attendants, uh, but also the workplace is... Well, I mean, one, you're not going into a building where you have a regular group of coworkers that you see nine to five, but you're going to a city that you're not actually living in, then you're flying somewhere. And in a lot of ways, the workplace is, is in the air. So tell us what it's like mm-hmm. to, to organize, and you're in a car drive right now, to have one-on-one conversations with coworkers, to build the organizing committee as a flight attendant. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, this is definitely an extremely unique organizing experience, something that I, I have not experienced anything like since becoming a flight attendant. Um, it you know presents a lot of challenges, but it also presents a lot of advantages given the way we work. So, you know, of course, like any organizing, uh, you know, campaign, um, kind of the foundation of our campaign is building relationships with each other. Um, and so, you know, we want to get to know our fellow flight attendants. We want to know why they're flying. We want to know their experiences so far. Um, you know, we want to know what's going on in their lives and, and how they're, how they're um, you know, viewing the job. And the way that we do that is by, um, you know, talking to them when we're working with them. So that could be at the lounge and the concourse, or it could be during our trips. 
but of course, this is where um, there's some debate over where we're able to talk to our um, with our fellow flight attendants. Um, Delta has what's called the advocacy policy, which basically says that we are not allowed to talk about our union campaign in work areas. And you may ask, what does that mean? Mm, or is yeah. that legal? And yeah. the answer is no, because it's a federally protected right that we're able to talk about our union campaign wherever non-work conversations are permitted. And what's a non-work conversation? It means if I could talk about my pets, if I could talk about my weekend plans, it means I can also talk about our union campaign. Mm-hmm. And where do people talk about their pets and their weekend plans? You know, it's when we're working. It's when we're, you know, preparing um, the galley together. It's when we're cleaning up. It's when we're on our layovers. It's when we're in the you know, concourse waiting to board the flight. So these are areas where, you know, we organize. Mm. And it is really challenging because, you know, my crew, which can range from anywhere from three to maybe 11 or 12 crew members, if it's an international flight, um, I'll only work with them for one to three days. And most of my crews, I've never met or seen these people before. Um, And so I'll get on a flight, I'll wear my AFA pin and I'll just go from there, right? Like some people may also be wearing their pin. Some people may ask or make a comment about it, and that'll start maybe an organizing conversation. Uh, but otherwise, what we're doing is, you know, getting to know our crew um, through working with them. Um, so we're, you know, talking about, um, like I said, like their life, their job, their experiences so far, um, what they find challenging about the job, what they'd like to improve. And that's where we talk about our campaign. You know, um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions, you know, that's implanted by this sort of propaganda, like the poster that you just showed. And so we're we're constantly dispelling those those misconceptions and and rumors about the campaign and and um, getting cards signed. And you know, it, it's a challenge, like I said, because uh, we're only working with these folks from one to three days. But um, the advantage is that we are very intimately working with these people for one to three days. Mm. You know, we don't have managers looking over us. You know, when we are on these planes, it's just us flight attendants who have control over the entire cabin. Um, and so we um, have a lot of access and ability to have these organizing conversations. And, you know, especially if it's a three-day trip, really get to know these crew members well. But of course, three days sometimes isn't enough, right? In like a typical shop, you know, when you're organizing, you're seeing these people every day for months, you know, potentially years. Um, We only have three days. And so a lot of what our organizing involves is communicating with each other, right? Like if I met someone on my trip who maybe didn't sign a card yet, but was, you know, really interested in the campaign, uh, we're communicating as a campaign about that so that when another person or another activist works Mm. with that crew member, they can, you know, Mm. basically continue the conversation and hopefully get that card signed. Um, so it's a, it's a very tedious process and involves a lot of communication, a lot a lot of uh, note taking and organizing and and all that. But um, it's a really you know you know interesting process. I think I think you know a lot of people wish that they had the amount of time that we had with each other without managers looking over our shoulder. I think a lot of um, organizers would love that type of situation. That <laughs> that's so fascinating. Yeah, where you're just, for sure. It's a it's very unique. I mean, you don't have. Anyone looking over your shoulder, you can go deep with people really quickly, I can imagine. Someone you've never met before, but you're like literally sitting next to them for like 10 hours. And then you're learning everything about their life and the things they enjoy, the things they love doing outside of work, their quirks, because you're also like... They're, they're sleeping in the same quarters as you. and (laughs) It's kind of a joke among flight attendants, but when you sit next to each other in that jump seat, secrets just come out. And like, we are so used to chatting about our jobs, our life, things going on. So it just kind of makes sense for things like the union campaign to come up because we're always just talking to each other, especially when we're sitting in those jump seats. Yeah, yeah. 
in a typical campaign, you'll have a committee member cover, like you mentioned, you, there's, there are people that you see every day, sometimes for many years. You build lifelong relationships. There are organic leaders that develop out, out of those relationships. And so typically, you'll have a committee member cover a distinct set of 10 people, right? right? And if you have a workplace of 100, then you have 10 committee members, each covering 10 people, those 10 leaders can move a supermajority of coworkers, then you file and you're good to go, in, at least in the private yeah. sector under sort of standard labor law under the NLRB. In the case of Delta, you're having a different set of coworkers and you then never see them again, but are handed off to potentially another person who's, who's now in their crew. You know, it's definitely the case that I think a lot of people have their own views on like the union activists, right? And they may have certain feelings about that. But if that's the case, you know, my job is really to just get to know them as, a, as right. another flight attendant. You know, I, I don't think, you know, we're just a campaign that's trying to collect as many cards as possible in order to win election. We're trying to build a strong union. Mm -hmm. And the foundation yeah. of that is going to be strong connections with each other, strong relationships, strong solidarity among flight attendants. So, you know, even if, you know, some folks, especially those senior folks who have been with Delta for 40 years, you know, they may have some feelings about the union, but it's still my job as a, as a, as a organizing uh, committee member, as an activist of AFA um, and a flight attendant to get to know them and bring them in because ultimately, you know, this is, this is our union. It's, it's every Delta flight attendant. It's not just the supporters. Um, you know, all of us are going to be part of building this project. So. Mm, yeah. Spoken like a strong committee member. That's right. Yeah. Relationships are key to a strong union. And, yes. you know, it sounds like that time you get on the flight together is really helpful for organizing. Um, but I know it must be tough to organize. I mean, I, I know it's tough to organize with an anti-union campaign because I did that myself um, with the MIT Grad Student Union. So I'm curious, you know, what's the anti-union campaign been like? We talked a little bit about the PlayStation, um, but we actually saw a video the other day that was quite oh, yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, so I think it'd be great to show you um, to see what you think sure. of it. Yeah, we'll play the video and then we want to get your just immediate reactions. I'm Kaylin. I'm Atlanta-based and I've been flying with Delta for eight years. I've always been super proud of the fact that my mom works at Delta, and I am so proud to carry on the legacy that not only she's created, but the people before her. Growing up, just watching her love her job and go to work every day, she took me around the world when I was a child. I just wanted to live the life that she had. I worked at other jobs in corporate America, and I can't think of any other company where you have access to the senior leadership like we do. I had a situation the other day, we had a mechanical. My purser and I actually got rerouted we sent an email to our senior leadership, and we had an email response within minutes. And to get a personal response, it's just unheard of at any company that I've worked at. My reason for being against a union at Delta Airlines is honestly, I just think about the pandemic that we just went through. Delta was able to turn on a dime. We were able to make decisions, and they were very, very quickly enacted and put into place. We were the first to receive boarding pay. The unionized airlines are going after the things that we are already getting and that we already have because our senior leadership have put them in place for us. What I want for the future is I want to keep Delta my Delta because my Delta has shown me how much they care for me and how much they want to do right by their people. Okay. So my immediate reaction, I guess, is... Um, She's pretty lucky she got a, a quick email response because that's pretty uncommon. <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time I FSM, my manager didn't get back to me. 
I, I probably have a living wage, actually. Um, <laughs> I was wondering about that email response, too, because, like, I don't know, you just rarely see that. And it sounds like that's the only thing that senior management is giving, you know, in that video. Right. Yeah. And so I guess I guess just some context on, on that video. So this is um, the One Delta campaign. It's an independent flight attendant run campaign um, that is anti-union. Um, they have all those um, nice videos, a great website, and they wear um, what's called the flying D pin. And what's interesting is I've actually never seen the flying D pin on the line when I'm working. I've only seen it in these videos and when I was at uh, training, which I can I can talk about the propaganda we were exposed to and flight attendant training as well. But yeah, if you watch any of those videos, the number one thing they'll tell you is that Delta has a very unique culture where we have an open door policy where I can go to senior leadership and I can tell them about my experience and I can ask them of things, dot, dot, dot. And that's where the story ends, right? In reality, you know, it's great that maybe a manager heard you out. That wasn't my experience with my manager or our base management. But ultimately, nothing we have, including boarding pay, is just because the senior leadership felt good and felt bad about our experience as Delta flight attendants and decided to treat us to boarding pay. It's primarily because Delta flight attendants are struggling with pay, like many flight attendants do. And we have been demanding to be paid for our work, um, which, you know, boarding is a very laborious process. We're not just sitting around doing nothing. And also the union campaign is growing and taking off and Delta feels threatened by that. And so they implemented uh, boarding pay as a way to undermine you know, as an attempt to undermine our efforts, although it's not successful. So yeah, I think um, that's a common talking point that you'll hear from all of the uh, One Delta videos is that a union would threaten our open door policy. But I don't really think the open door policy is very meaningful. If we're not getting the uh, pay, uh, if we're not getting the quality of life benefits that a union contract could bring us. Yeah, I always kind of laugh at the whole open door policy thing because I mean, one, it was an email. So like you can find anyone's email and it's, open because unless you're like blocked as right. a sender to an email. So if sending an email is an open door policy, that's pretty nuts to me. But then also, like you said, it's dot, dot, dot. What happened? She didn't even mention what happened with the email. Right. Also, exactly. in the age of artificial intelligence, that could just be a very, that could be an automated email that sounds personalized. Right. So And Delta is a very technology advanced co company. So yeah, there you I go. I would not be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't imagine someone in senior leadership being, wow, I'm really concerned about this flight attendant. Let me give them a personalized response. But in either case, I mean, the other thing that she mentions is the pandemic. Um, and it's really good to know, I think, the, the point you mentioned around in every effective anti-union campaign or companies that try to run effective anti-union campaigns, they always have some level of like astroturfed group of workers coming together organically who are themselves opposed to the union because otherwise it just seems like the company cracking down. Uh, it's much more favorable for them to, for it to seem like workers themselves are rejecting a quote unquote outside force rather than the framing that we go for, which is also accurate, that workers are organically coming together to, to demand more and better for their own lives. Right. Um, and it's also because, not because they hate the company, but because they like it and they don't want to leave, but they need certain things to change to, to survive so and thrive. Um, but the other thing she mentions is the pandemic and that Delta doesn't mention exactly what happened, but Delta uh, was able to come up with a plan and execute it very rapidly. 
You have worked at Delta for what two years? Uh, I only started last year, so I last wasn't um, I wasn't around during the the beginning of the the COVID pandemic. But I, I've you know heard uh, from more senior folks kind of what happened. Yeah, um, could you speak to that? So from talking yeah. to coworkers about the pandemic, what was their experience, and does it line up with what the anti-union campaign has stated about it? Yeah, I mean the anti-union campaign kind of has this narrative, right? That Delta stood among the competition and really just um, floated above like all the challenges that um, COVID presented, or at least didn't allow those challenges to affect our lives as flight attendants. Basically, the story is that Delta was the only airline that didn't have to let anyone go during the pandemic. What happened is in the start of the pandemic, Delta offered flight attendants to take like a a, a package, like a, an, an early retirement package. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they got basically a... a, a a buyout, right, to, to quit, um, to leave the company. And a lot of um, people took this, a lot of people, especially in their mid-careers, um, who had been with the company for like five to seven years and, you know, effectively lost their jobs. You know, a lot of them that I've talked to, especially, um, you know, would have loved to keep flying for Delta to be flight attendants. But, you know, of course, you know, Delta was was pushing the um, the buyout. And so a lot of people took it, um, especially because there was no flights to work. And so if there's no flights to work, how are you getting paid? Mm. Um, Delta is presenting you this good chunk of cash that you can just take. And so a lot of people had to because they had to live. And so, you know, the story goes, they didn't have to let anyone go. In essence, thousands of flight attendants left the company. And, you know, a lot of flight attendants who didn't leave the company, but were um, not working, were, you know, not making a dollar for eight months, nine months, over a year, people just sitting at home making nothing. That's really kind of what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and was like the experience of a lot of flight attendants who worked during COVID. Yeah, that's definitely not the pretty picture that was painted in that video. Yeah, it's a convenient narrative when if you hypothetically had 10,000 workers and you go to a thousand of them and say, here, take this buyout. And then it's like, okay, I'm not going to do it. Or right. we're going to fire you. Like yeah. that's what would have, if no one took the buyout, what would they have done? They would have laid people right. off. Right. Yeah. I mean, airlines got millions of dollars. And, you know, the story from the airlines goes that we need this money in order to, you know, um, protect jobs, in order to serve our customers, in order to basically take care of the people who like make the airline run. But the story that actually happened, you know, a lot of people were let go. Wages weren't increased. Um, and in fact, wages in essence kind of decreased because we stopped receiving profit sharing for a bit. Mm. Um, you know, there was no wage increase going up with inflation. A lot of um, quality of life things also kind of quietly um, ceased, you know, things like our health insurance and other like kind of policies that that a lot of flight attendants relied on were, were kind of quietly like just sunsetted. So, you know, whether it was Delta or honestly, a lot of these other major carriers, uh, the CARES money was not used to protect jobs or to, you know, protect our quality of life or, you know, uh, protect our wages at all. Yeah. So we just to clarify this, so you could kind of just wake up one day and not have health insurance because they weren't covering it? So I'm not sure if what happened with health insurance during during the pandemic, but Basically, and this has been a process that's been ongoing is, you know, we used to have very good health insurance Delta, you know, offered us very good plans um, that were fairly cheap. But over time, it's gotten extremely expensive and um, the flexibility has went down a lot. And most of us just have HSAs that barely provide enough coverage for things like doctor's visits. And that's really important for flight attendants because a lot of people don't realize we get injured quite a bit on the job, whether it's, you know, pushing carts or lifting bags, you know, that can 
um, cause a lot of shoulder and knee injuries. Uh, during turbulence, we can get pushed over or carts can fall on us that can break bones. And I had a lot of colleagues who broke bones because of that. Wow. Um, and that could put us out of work for months sometimes, you know, broken fingers, um, you know, even things like passengers assaulting flight attendants can cause injuries. Oh so these things can really um, cause a lot of harm. Even too, you know, we're exposed to radiation much higher than other occupations, and that causes a higher incidence of cancer among senior flight attendants. So these things are really, you know, significant issues, and we are getting like worse and worse health coverage every single year from Delta. So it, it is a huge issue that, you know, if we had a contract, we would have some power to negotiate over. Well, at least you have an open door policy, so you can go talk to management exactly. about that and let them know about that healthcare issue. Uh, before yep. we get into the sort of last set of questions here, you did mention during your onboarding and training that there was a lot of anti-union propaganda that you were exposed to. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, it's kind of infamous um, now, but um, they do what's called the steak and salmon lunch. <laughs> and mm. this is like in your last week of training. So you've, you know, you've done uh, basically 12 hour days, six days a week, <laughs> every week, you're about to graduate, you're about to go online, you have your uniform, uh, you know, you're feeling good. And they give us a, um, a card that says you're invited to a voluntary meeting uh, to learn more about Delta's culture. And um, of course, I knew what this was about because, like I said, it's it's kind of known at this point. Um, so you know, you go into this lunch, you're fed the most amazing meal that you've been fed the entire training experience. Um, you know, hot, you know, steak and salmon and salad and dessert and all, the, all these things. And you know, you'll have a um, someone from Delta. Uh, in my experience, it was someone who started, I think, two months prior. It was very new. Um, talk about how you know Delta's culture is very unique and how a union would basically destroy that. They talked about how at other um, airlines uh, that recently unionized, like JetBlue, um, the union promised all these things. And then when it came time to sign a contract and, and, and ratify the contract, you know, everything was taken out and the, the union basically lied to all the flight attendants. Um, they were duped. Those were like the main points that we were hit with. You know, from my experience, I don't think a lot of my, my training colleagues really bought into it. I think a lot of people understood it as like, you know, of course, Delta is feeding us this amazing meal just to feed us this propaganda basically, but they do it in a very calculated and careful way, right? Like the whole thing is scripted and, and we know that, but it's not presented as if it's scripted. It's, it's met with like a very like calm and friendly energy and, you know, this nice meal. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just another flight attendant giving you a warning about these agitators. And, and they really present in a way that like, you know, these outside agitators are going to harass you and you need to be careful. Mm. Um, they bring up the advocacy policy, like I brought up earlier, you know, us technically not being allowed to talk about our campaign in work areas, you know, they'll present it in a way that you have a right to be safe on the jobs, safe from these, from these agitators, from these, you know, political agitators. And, and yeah, that's how they present it. And then the the second sort of like big anti-union intervention is at the graduation. So we're in uniform, all of our parents are about to come in to, you know, see us graduate and get our wings pinned on us. Um, and they give this really big talk about how, again, Delta's culture is very different, how, you know, we need to protect that. And, you know, at this time, they won't actually bring up the union because, you know, this isn't a voluntary meeting. Um, this is all mm. we're, we're required to be a graduation, but they're, they're kind of like very carefully talking about Delta's culture in a way that's hinting at a union, you know, you know, disrupting that. Mm. And then at the very end, they'll direct us to a table where we can talk more about Delta's culture. And we can also get 
the Flying D pin, which is one Delta's pin that they want all the flight attendants to wear to say that we're against the union. And, you know, you're thinking, why does the one Delta, you know, independent flight attendant run organization have this nice special table at a, you know, Delta flight attendant graduation? The union, the union is not allowed there. Mm, <laughs> the right. union is not allowed to give a talk. Yeah, like where's your so, advocacy law now? <laughs> a rule, right? So, um, so those are like the two big incidences. Everyone talks about it. it's kind of a joke, but in a way, it's a bit effective, especially for people who are kind of on the fence, right? Yeah. Like, especially people who came from other carriers where maybe they didn't have a great experience, and they come to Delta thinking this is going to be, you know, the best airline because mm -hmm. that's kind of the propaganda that they're fed. It can be effective for those folks um, to really kind of be afraid of the union or afraid of of other flight attendants talking about the union. Mm -hmm. I mean, one, it's interesting that everyone gets the flying D pin, but you haven't really seen a single person wearing it. So that's mm -hmm. that's a good sign. But you're right on the effectiveness of an anti-union campaign. They're not interested in winning over people who know they're not going to be won over, right? right. People yeah. who are, they're coming in pro-union. They're excited about getting involved. People who are already involved in the union, having signed their card, prepared for the anti-union campaign. But it's a numbers game because they know based on a very distinct set of laws that govern the organization of all workers in the airline industry, it's it's a real marathon to form a union. Yeah. And it's not about, it's about reaching the threes and the people who are undecided, who don't know much about it, who aren't prepared to see it. Uh, it's about solidifying the people with already an anti-union sort of bent to them. Yeah. but And I think too, it's about instilling a lot of fear. That's and that's right. really effective too. Um, you know, I think a lot of flight attendants are are generally supportive of the union or at least open to the effort, but they have a lot of fear about talking about it. Mm -hmm. And that's the number one issue that I've run into in my organizing conversations. You know, you know, people who are kind of scared to sign a card because they're afraid that Delta will find out. They're afraid to wear a pen because they think their manager will start targeting them. Mm. Um, you know, we even have this thing called the fly right period, which is presented as a probation period, which most you know union contracts will have. But ours present, you know, ours is presented as a as a probationary period, but it's it's not real. We're always on probation. We are always subject mm. to, you know, being fired at will. Um, but it's one of those strategic moves that Delta makes in order to, you know, instill fear in new flight attendants, right? Like if you think, oh, I'm in my fly right period, then I'm on the chopping block and I need to be careful and I need to go under the radar. So a lot of flight attendants, when they start out, they're not going to sign a card and they're not going to wear their, their union pens because they're afraid their manager will catch them and they'll be fired. But that can happen whether you're on fly right or whether you've been a flight attendant for 25 years. Right. Um, so Delta is very calculated in instilling fear in a lot of flight attendants. And that's one of the main obstacles that you know we on the organizing committee face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, Maddie and I worked on a campaign and one thing together and one thing we always emphasize is that it's not the company rarely tries to make people like activate people they're the 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 organizing campaign to form a union activates people empowers people mm -hmm. the company side campaign to crush the union demobilizes people disempowers people but it's all about making it sufficiently controversial the moment that committee members start feeling like I shouldn't bring it up because like this group of people, mm -hmm. they're not going to want to talk about it. It's like, no, you got to be unabashed about it. Obviously, you have to be yeah. tactful, uh, but you have to demonstrate to people and project a level of confidence around your position. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you're already starting to fold to the anti-campaign of fear, yeah. of doubt, of inertia. Like this is just the way things have been. They can't really change. Right. Uh, but all the yeah. things you mentioned, and and really, I think ultimately it's about there's always going to be fear. Everyone's scared. I haven't met someone, very few people who haven't been scared to sign a union card. But as soon as 
the cost of doing nothing, which can only be drawn out through relationships, like you said, and getting mm-hmm. to know people, but the cost of doing nothing, the cost of not taking action overcomes the cost of action and, and the fear that's yeah. associated with it. So, you know, it's it's such a such a historic campaign. And I feel based on what you've said in the interview, confident that you all will prevail and people oh, yeah. uh will feel more inclined to form a union and get the things they deserve than buying a PS, whatever the new edition is, to play video games and, and oh for sure. You know, do <laughs> yeah, some definitely. Stuff. There's a lot of conceptions around flight attendants, right? Like it's like, and it, it comes from, I think, a period, you know, flight attendants were around for a century and, you know, um, there used to be a lot of rules, right? Like you had to be, um, you know, they would, they would check your weight every time you flew. Mm-hmm. Um, they would check your, they would check your height. Um, you couldn't be married. You couldn't be pregnant. In many cases, you couldn't even be a man. It wasn't even, it wasn't until the seventies where a lot of airlines, including Delta started to allow men to be flight attendants. And Delta was actually the last uh, mainline carrier to accept men as flight attendants. Um, and so I think there's a lot of conceptions around, like, especially, you know, male flight attendants and, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, we're, we're a very diverse, you know, group of people, um, people in my training class were as young as 21 and as old as, you know, 55 years old. And we all had a range of experiences and, you know, some of us like worked in companies for decades before we became flight attendants. And so, you know, I don't think, you know, there's this like monolith of like the typical flight attendant, mm-hmm. um, you know, we all have different experiences and, and, and come from different backgrounds. Nice. One other thing I was wondering about flight attendants is, you know, we all have those times when we're at an airport and our flight gets delayed. It happened to me a while back. I had an international connection, um, missed the connection because the flight was so delayed. There's people up yelling at the counter, right, like about how the delay caused them to miss work, big work meeting, or to miss, you know, their connection. And I'm curious, what's that like from the perspective of a flight attendant? Mm. Yeah, well, we are equally as annoyed, I will say, <laughs> um, because we don't get paid for delays. Um, oh, if damn. I'm sitting at the airport, I'm not getting paid. Whether that's a you know one hour, two hour, three hour, four hours, we call them sits. Um, I'm not paid. A standard um, part of every um, airline contract, flight attendant contract, is that you get a hotel uh, for sits that are over four hours. Delta doesn't have that. So one time I had a seven hour sit because of a delay, and I just sat in the airport for seven hours and didn't make anything. Oh my god! Um, wow. So yeah, we are we are equally as annoyed during delays um, because we are not getting paid and we just want to go home. <laughs> well, we really appreciate you coming on the show, Michael. I think people are really gonna enjoy hearing and and be informed and really appreciate all the information around what it actually is like to be a flight attendant. And uh, everyone who takes a flight with Delta should. Make sure they're super nice to their flight attendants. I'm sure you all go through a lot that people aren't aware of. And also uh, support the union, of course. Of course. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, if you see anyone wearing an AFA pin, definitely give them a thumbs up. Yeah. It'll make our day. Okay, cool. Well, thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of On The Line. Make sure you like, share, and follow us at at Labor On The Line on all streaming and social media platforms. And as always, whether we're on the assembly line, on the phone line, or on the picket line, you can always find us on the line. We'll see y'all next time.